This fucking guy. Hello, my quiche Lorraine. Welcome to This Fucking Guy, a podcast about self-care. If self-care is doing one long scream into the void. <laughs> Here is where we use we use a lot of expletives mm-hmm. and a lot of alcohol mm. to emotionally process all the bullshit that compose the shitty elevator music that is our lives. I'm just doing my best. And Martinez. And I'm not sure what you expected, Ginger Golub. <laughs> that, that's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> it, okay, so Ren, do you have anything to scream into the void before we start in um, earnest? Only that gallbladders are dumb. Yeah. Gallbladders real dumb. Gallbladders suck. <laughs> So, um, a friend of mine, uh, he had to go to the hospital today. He's doing great. Good. Other than the fact that, like, he's full of stones. There are, like, stones in everything. I mean, that's not ideal. And they're like, oh, well, you have this, this faulty thing here. It's called your gallbladder. We're gonna have to, like, punch it out of you tomorrow. Or however <laughs> they do it. I don't really know anything about medicine. So, uh, yeah, he's going in for surgery tomorrow, and we'll be taking care of him, and I'll be making him so much soup. And there'll be actually vegetables in it, hopefully, because hopefully. I, I, lo- I love him so much. But he's definitely a man who's like, is that green? I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. And He's, he's definitely... at your mercy. He can't go anywhere. I mean, this is a man that once turned down my delicious chickpea curry. Mm. Delicious chickpea curry. It is delicious. Because... I did have heartburn for two days, but it's so good. Well, it was he was it. like, it has too many carbs in it. And he what? proceeded to eat Vienna sausages out of a can. And I'm like, that's not the main concern here. Sir. Carbs is not the problem. <laughs> There's a problem here. It's not carbs. It's not carbs. Oh, boy. So, um, yeah. So I, I'm wishing him the best, but gallbladders are a useless organ. They pretty much are until it's time for me to go to a car- carnival and get a corn dog. And I'm just like, oh. Oh. <laughs> So it's, I guess, a cool club that you and he could I be I mean, part it's of. not that I literally cannot eat it. It just means that, like, hey, do I have anything else to do today except for poop? <laughs> just schedule it in. Just, just like, yeah, here's my I agenda for today. Just, yeah. Corn dogs later indisposed. Yeah, I suppose, like, young and cool people, like, if they know that they're going to go to a club and take Molly or something, they, like, set aside the day after to just, like, be depressed because it depletes your brain chemicals and shit, I being a 30-year-old woman, (laughs) instead plan out my bathroom time from uh, eating fried foods and... My husband's uh, lactose intolerant, so I understand completely. Yeah. I understand the struggle. So, we're fun. Like, share, and subscribe. (laughs) Adulthood's great! Adulthood. What could go wrong? <laughs> All right, Ren. <sighs> you ready to hear about a dead asshole? I suppose I am. I've opened a new bold rock, which, again, at this point, we've drunk so much, I'm like, a sponsorship, please. Give me money please. for drinking. Um, or just free bold rock. Or just free bold rock, honestly. Yeah. That wouldn't be too bad. That would be pretty sweet. As our uh, podcast social media maven, you want to reach out? Oh, sure. Oh, let's see what happens. <laughs> So, do you remember uh, last dead asshole movie you talked about with Wilson and the Espionage Act? 
Right, yeah, because he was a racist prick that was also like, are you criticizing me, sir? Fuck you, jail. Are you a commie? Are you a communist for for slightly for saying slightly improvements would be good? Oh, yeah. Roy Marcus Cohn. I don't know this man. Oh! Roy oh, this Marcus Cohn. Like, it's the kind of name that I was aware that I had heard the name before and then last weekend my dad was like you need to do this one and I'm like mm, let me look at it and then I was like what the fuck uh, alright alright I mean I really appreciate that Ginger's dad is listening to all the episodes shout yes. out Ginger's dad Yay. and giving us giving us feedback and giving us giving us people to um yeah giving oh uh into. yeah for those of you uh die hard this fucking guy heads. We don't have a name for the 12 people who listen to our podcast. But if anybody was keeping track, the proposed uh, cocktail recipe for an old sport right now is orange Gatorade and gin. Oh, God. Um, so if anybody has anything better to please suggest. Please something better. Please oh, God. contact us. That went in a direction I was not expecting. I was gonna, thought I was going to be delighted <laughs> oh, you didn't get the email I forwarded you? Babe, I'm I'm not. I'm out of the loop. Anyway, why don't we continue with Mr. Cone? <laughs> Let's not talk about the fact that I haven't checked my email in like a week and a half. Oh, okay, because also, like, I am holding you responsible for the, the fact that my dad asked me what finger blasting was. <laughs> um, <laughs> worth it. <laughs> was it? For me. <laughs> for me it was. Roy Cohn was born in New York City on February 20th, 1927. Uh, his mom was a woman named Dora Marcus, and his father was a judge named Albert Cohn. And they Sounds were like very wealthy and influential and raised up little Roy in a Park Avenue appointment. Nope. In a Park Avenue apartment. That's different. That's different than a Park <laughs> Avenue appointment. Uh, is the Bold Rock talking? It's okay. Bold Rock is talking. Uh, his father was a justice in the uh, appellate division of the state Supreme Court, so, like, real prestigious. Real prestigious. Fancy. Uh, and he was the one-time protege of the Tammany Hall boss, Ed Flynn. Uh, Tammany Hall being basically just, like... Corruption, background politics. Oh. Uh, Tammany Hall was like where all of the politicians got picked who were gonna run, pretty much. Uh, okay. And okay, like okay. corruption, early 1900s New York. Think of it that way. Cool. Not an era that I know a lot about, other than I've seen Newsies. It was great. Yeah. Uh, an insufferable uh, young Roy was precocious. <laughs> and <laughs> Precocious. Yep. And liked to impress his friends by telephoning famous family friends, such as uh, Mayor William O'Dwyer, on the spur of the moment to make small talk. What a... Ugh. What a little douche. What a dickhole. Like, oh, God. Like, this is not an eight-year-old I would want to ever be around. His mother uh, especially doted on him and bragged about how he was so clever and unlike many of our previous dead assholes, TM, 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 um, Roy was very close to his family and liked to name drop his daddy and his uncle, 
uh, who owned a toy train company, and that's as much as I'm going to get into about that, to get stuff. He also lived at home until his mother's death in 1967 when he was 40. Now, oh, wow, okay. Now, I assume that this was, like, part-time living at home because he was definitely doing stuff in Washington, but, like, just keep that in I mean, as a millennial and someone who has moved back into her parents' home as an adult, like, I would also say, like, no judgment there. No judgment. But I'm guessing it's not because he was poor and covered in student loan debt. Cone graduated from (laughs) Columbia Law School at the age of 20. Oh, boy. Yeah, precocious little scamp. Precocious scamp. He had to wait until he was 21, though, to be admitted to the state bar. Um, And the day he was admitted, he used his political connections to get on the staff of the United States Attorney in Manhattan. Uh, So I just, I just, I feel really bad for everybody who's in that office because, of course, they they have to say yes, but I was like, this fucking upstart little nonsense no brain kid who doesn't know shit i have no photographic evidence to confirm it but i have to assume he was wearing suspenders and a bow tie mm-hmm. oh this is just where we're starting but do you know my father it's draco you know my malfoy <laughs> it's draco my, my yes, father basically, you know about this? basically <laughs> As an assistant United States attorney specializing in subversive activities, he was soon to come to public attention as a boy wonder. That's that's never gone wrong. It's never gone wrong for a young man born to entitlement and privilege and riches, like, was lauded. Do you ever hear anybody called a boy wonder that 40 years later they flash back and they're like, yep, still doing great. Still (laughs) doing... Still great. Nope. Nope. As an assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, he helped secure convictions in a number of well-publicized trials of accused Soviet operatives and helped prosecute 11 members of the American Communist Party uh, for preaching the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. Oops, don't check my Facebook. (laughs) But most... (laughs) Most notably of that era, uh, Cohn played a prominent role in the 1951 espionage trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Ah, yeah. Yeah. I've heard of them. I know them. Yeah. Uh, He did the direct examination, um, most notably, of Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, and produced testimony that was central to their conviction and subsequent execution. Greenglass would later claim that he lied at the trial in order to, quote, protect himself and his wife, Ruth, and that he was encouraged by the prosecution to do so. What? Weird. When has that ever happened in the United States criminal justice system? That sounds sounds so weird and fake. Cohn always took great pride in the Rosenberg verdict and claimed to have played an even greater part than his public role. Uh, he liked to tell people that he and the judge would just like, mm, talk about this a little bit on the side, outside the courtroom, and that the judge listened to his recommendations, like, to execute these two people. That's, that's not, that's... That's like not against, how it works, and it's illegal. Ethics. Like, yeah. you're not supposed to do that. Oh, like, girl, just there's wait. There's, like, big rules about Oh, I'm sure. But, yeah. like, there's big rules about that. I'm sure Susie Cream Cheese would attest you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, staff, achie- uh, staff attorney Susie Cream Cheese. This one's <laughs> for you. 
But Cohn specifically stated in his autobiography that Judge Kaufman imposed the death penalty based on his personal recommendation. No! Why would you admit that? I mean, I guess you're both really proud of the fact that it's like, guess what? Two people were murdered because of me, yay! But also, like, what a breach of ethics! Why would you immortalize it? <laughs> well, and because because of all this bullshit, like, the way history has turned was like, yeah, they probably did it or did some of it, but the prosecution was so corrupt that, she, that they still shouldn't have been convicted. Right? They just had such a boner for, like, killing communists. It didn't matter what the actual evidence was. They were just going to... Wiggle that boner around and slap justice with it. Ugh. Wing. Wing. <laughs> In an interview with... Fuck, I didn't write this down, but I think it was uh, the New York Times. Um, Cohn was interviewed about this well after the fact. And the reporter writes, at this point in the story... Cohn smiled broadly and told me, with obvious pride, that since the FBI knew Julius was guilty and he would get away with it if they played by the rules, the FBI enhanced evidence, got witnesses to improve their stories, and worked hand-in-hand with the judge. I mean, where's the lie, though? (laughs) Where's the lie? I mean, that's... You're not supposed to say that part out loud, Yeah. Joan. You're supposed to... Roy, 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 my friend. Roy, my boy. Like, you're supposed to keep that part quiet. You're supposed to keep it on the down low. You're not supposed to say it big and broad and to the New York Times. <laughs> but, you know. Uh, All right. But the Rosenberg trial brought him, and he was 24, he was 24. We have a lot of legal interns who, like, have not figured out not to wear, like, Lululemons to the office <laughs> that are older than we 24. still don't know how to do a PowerPoint presentation. They still don't know Jesus how to do a Christ. fucking PowerPoint. We love you, interns, but you don't have to read everything. You don't. The Rosenberg trial brought the 24-year-old Cone to the attention of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, no! That's... Fucking guy. Who recommended him to Joseph McCarthy. So everyone here is just a winner. Just wait. (laughs) Uh, McCarthy hired Cohn as his chief counsel and shows him over Robert Kennedy, which I didn't even know he was involved in the McCarthy hearings. Like, I guess I should have, but... I mean... Yeah. Cohn became known for his aggressive questioning of suspected communists. That big justice boner. It just can't be sated. According to his later law partner, Thomas A. Bolin, said in an interview, as a young man, he came to the conclusion that the Soviet Union and communism were a threat to the survival of the United States in freedom as we know it. He spent his entire public life fighting it. Mm-hmm. Um... It should be noted, and I guess I'll get into this a little bit later, this guy was, like, a registered Democrat, and this was, like, post-Southern Switch, and, like, maintained his status as a Democrat for a really long time, despite some bullshit we gonna talk about. Well, admittedly, like, I mean, Democrats also, as someone who is independent, but obviously leans left, 
Democrat Party has all has also been all up in that Cold War shit. They were also like yeah hard into that like commie blah 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 stuff. It still can be. So you know that's not entirely surprising. Cohn preferred not to hold hearings in open forums, which went well with McCarthy's preference for holding executive sessions and off-the-record sessions away from the Capitol in order to minimize public scrutiny and to question the witnesses with relative impunity. (laughs) (laughs) It always goes well when you're like, hey, we're on the side of justice. That's why no one can know what we're doing. (laughs) That's what justice means. Cohn played a major role in McCarthy's crusade against communism, as I'm sure you can imagine. During the Lavender Scare, Cohn and McCarthy attempted to enhance anti-communist fervor in the country by claiming that communists overseas had convinced several closeted homosexuals employed by the U.S. federal government to pass on important government secrets in exchange for keeping their sexuality secret. There's no evidence that this ever actually happened. No. Wasn't it? I think it was Eisenhower who, uh... Girl, we gonna get into it. Well, no, I, 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 I feel like Eisenhower was part of this lavender scare, right? And what... I, I'm you so, might be talking about the exact next thing I'm talking about. Talking about the lesbians? No. Okay. So Tell me about I the just, lesbians, right? <laughs> the lesbians? Um, I just saw this little story where apparently when Eisenhower was part of this, you know, the lavender scare or whatever... Like, he was specifically, he asked, like, his, his secretary, who was, like, a naval officer or secretary mm-hmm. or whatever, to, like, sign into order, essentially, like, any lesbian who's in the armed forces needs to be ousted. And he was, like, hold, please, and brought, like, his top 15, like, female, like, military secretary women, like, top women. He, he was, like, we're all lesbians. <laughs> So you will lose your entire <laughs> staff. And apparently he did, like, ease up in that specific regard. Oh, God. Um, it's just a delightful little story. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I'm imagining it like oh, that lesbians. scene in Life of Brian where it's the crowd and they're all women wearing beards. <laughs> exactly. Like, Harold, they're lesbians. <laughs> oh, boy. But, yeah, so they thought that the communists were, like, blackmailing U.S. intelligence who were gay, uh, using the fact that they were gay to, like, convince them to turn state secrets or something. A thing that did not happen. But you know know what that means, of course, I'm sure what you're going to say is that the response was to accept LGBT people in their ranks so they felt supported and had no reason to turn over state secrets to the communists. I'm sure that's what you're going to say. Convinced that the employment of homosexuals was now a threat to national security, (laughs) President Dwight Eisenhower signed an executive order on April 29th, 1953 to ban homosexuals from working in the federal government. So no, Ren. McCarthy and Cohn were ultimately responsible for the firing of scores of gay men from government employment and strong-armed many opponents into silence using rumors of their homosexuality. Cool, cool, cool. Homophobia's always been a thing here. Always been a thing here. Cohn invited his friend G. David, I think it's pronounced Skeen. I'm going to pronounce it Skeen is S-C-H-I-N-E. I believe So it's either Skeen or Shiny. Um, and I'm going to go with Skeen. 
an anti-communist propagandist, to join McCarthy's staff as a consultant. Their friendship eventually led to McCarthy's downfall. As they plowed through investigations of the State Department in the Voice of America, relentlessly trying to sniff out communists and their sympathizers, Mr. Cohn, Mr. Skeen, and Senator McCarthy, all bachelors at the time, were themselves the target of what some called reverse McCarthyism. There were snickering suggestions that the three men were homosexuals. <laughs> I mean, that's not okay, but still. And attacks such as that by the playwright Lillian Hillman, who called them Bonnie, Bonnie, and Clyde. <laughs> like, it's super burn. not okay, but it's it's comeuppance, and that's why we enjoy it so much. I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't really appreciate, again, there is that sort of, like, really gross idea that, like, oh, people are only homophobic because they're closeted, which is really gross and not true, but, like, I do think, like, mockery is one of the best ways of fighting, like, fascism and discrimination and shit like that, so I do appreciate a good mocking. So when Skeen was drafted into the army in 1953, Cone made repeated and extensive efforts to procure special treatment for Skeen. He demanded that Skeen be given light duties, extra leave, and exemption from an overseas assignment. Hmm. At one point, Cone is reported to have threatened to, quote, wreck the army if his demands were not met. You know what? You gotta do what love demands. That conflict, along with McCarthy's accusations of communists in the Defense Department, led to the Army McCarthy hearings of 1954, during which the Army charged Conan McCarthy with using improper pressure on Skeen's behalf. And McCarthy and Cohn countercharged that the Army was holding Skeen hostage in an attempt to squelch McCarthy's investigations into communists in the Army. They just messy. They just real messy. During the ensuing month-long Senate extravaganza, Army Counsel Joseph N. Welch became a popular hero. McCarthy came across on television as just the worst. The worst. <laughs> and his reputation basically never recovered. Um, representatives of the Army and members of the Senate Committee insinuated that Cohn had lobbied the Army in this matter because he and Skeen were, in the snide words of the Committee's counsel, quote, Warm personal friends. That's 50 speak for gay! <laughs> so Mr. Cohn and Senator McCarthy were cleared in 1954 of the Army's charges, but the public uh, just went, nope, we are not into this. Uh, and so in December 1904, Senator McCarthy was formally censured, and uh, Cohn resigned from McCarthy's staff that same year and went into private practice, um, where he had a 30-year career as an attorney in New York City. Well, good for him. Good for him, and that's the end of... No. Uh, <laughs> what a short episode. I thought he'd already accomplished all the bad shit that he could accomplish. In 1973... The Justice Department accused Donald Trump of violating the Fair Housing Act and 39 of his properties. <laughs> the government oh, no! oh, no! The government alleged that Trump's cor corporation quoted different rental terms and conditions and made false no vacancy statements to African Americans for apartments it managed. <laughs> Representing Trump 
Cohen filed a countersuit against the government for $100 million, asserting that the charges were irresponsible and baseless. Oh, man, you know what I really appreciate is that, like, I mean, obviously, we're, we're, we're doing this podcast for, like, self-care to scream mm-hmm. about, like, the, the people and things that are the fucking worst. And we, we've brushed over our current precedent, but we really haven't, like, dove in. And I appreciate that you are taking that dive. I appreciate that you've broken the seal. It's going to be a pretty shallow dive into Trump because, like, wh- one of the sort of philosophies behind this fucking guy is that we're not going to cover history's greatest monsters. And I think time will show how that one turns. <laughs> I mean, we're really, I mean, yeah, but I, I pre, again, I appreciate that you've broken the seal. Yes. So to speak. So Trump and Cohen's countersuit was unsuccessful. Trump settled the charges out of court in 1975, saying he was satisfied that the agreement did not, quote, compel the Trump organization to accept persons on welfare as tenants unless as qualified as any other tenant. <laughs> So, like, <laughs> they, uh, the Trump Corporation was required to send, like, a list of vacancies to the New York Urban League and civil rights groups and give the league priority for certain locations. So, like, some good stuff came out of it. If, it, if that turned out to be a bad thing, I didn't look into it. Like, don't at me. Oh, my uh, face is melting like an Ark of the Covenant. In 1978, the Trump Organization was again in court for violating terms of the 1975 settlement. Yeah, sounds sounds real. Cohen called the new charges, quote, nothing more than a rehash of the complaints by a couple of planted malcontents. In the early 80s, uh... You know, picture it. The early 80s. Cocaine is flowing through the rivers of New it's York Wolf City. It's Wall Street fucking it's, everywhere. Yeah. Just like fucking models in cocaine and everywhere. Trump was in his 30s and imagine the damage that 30-year-old Trump could do. And looking to make his way from his father's outer boroughs empire to the inner sanctum of the Manhattan real estate world. And Cohn became his lawyer and his fixer. Teaching him his methods. Oh he always attacked and never apologized. You know, I, I thought he was going to do, like, that he was going to be better after he, like, was working for the government. But I was wrong. Co- <laughs> I was wrong. He stopped at nothing to reach his aims, confused and distracted his opponents by abruptly changing terms of conversation, and lied and cheated without compunction. So, little did I think I would ever say this, but Donald Trump, solid learner. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Like, I mean, you know, we learn crime from the best. Roger Stone. Oh, no! Uh, Roger Stone, man with a Nixon tattoo in the man middle with a of his full-size Nixon tattoo on the on his back, um, was oh another protege of Cohn's and would later become a Trump advisor. Stone, who in January was indicted by the special counsel Robert Mueller for obstruction and witness tampering and false statements, sis. He pleaded not guilty to the charges. He has fa- been found guilty of the charges. He hasn't more fact, recently the than man this. who has, a, has the face of Richard Nixon between his shoulder blades has been found guilty of witness tampering. Mm. <laughs> what a shock. Who would have thought? 
Donald learned that from Roy. I learned that from Roy, he adds. Crime. I learned crime. Crime. I learned that. <laughs> Oi. What a statement. Cone is also credited with introducing Trump and Rupert Murdoch in the mid-1970s. <laughs> go wrong from that <laughs> you know how they say like you know there's, a, there's those thought experiments of like if you could go back in time to kill baby hitler would you and there's a lot of those specifically about the people who've committed those acts mm-hmm. why are we thinking that small no this man <laughs> this specific man so much so much evil could have been prevented yeah as a lawyer he represented such diverse clients as donald trump and, on occasion, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of New York. Oh, I can't imagine what that was for. He also represented Carmine Gallant, who, before his death, was said by authorities to be the mafia boss of all bosses. And Tony, quote, Fat Tony, (laughs) Salerno, also said to be a mafia chieftain. So he was basically working for, like, multiple mob bosses. And Donald Trump, like and the Tony's... Catholic Archdiocese, and Andy Warhol. Uh huh. I feel like Fat Tony is a place where I've gotten like, like subs before. Yeah, probably. I also <laughs> like feel a meatball like meatball sub. <laughs> I also feel like Fat Tony was probably like ninety-five pounds, and it was just a weird, oh, mean, it's Fat Tony. ironic nickname. Maybe not. So I, don't know I mean, okay. Him. I mean, admittedly, everyone deserves a defense attorney. Yeah. But, like, I do think it's telling when an, an attorney, a private attorney, mm-hmm. who makes buku money is like, you know who I'm going to represent? The fucking worst people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, speaking of, Cone aided Roger Stone in Ronald Reagan's presidential campaign in 1979 and 1980. I heard that only went well. Uh, <laughs> so what did again this registered democrat was that he arranged for john b anderson to get the nomination of the liberal party of new york so he split the democratic vote uh which helped reagan win the state by just 46 percent of the vote a long and great american tradition of rich men fucking with politics stone said Cone gave him a suitcase that Stone avoided opening, and, as instructed by Cone, dropped it off as the uh, dropped it off at the office of a lawyer influential in Liberal Party circles. It's real fun when Roger Stone is recounting something, being like, "Girl, this shady." <laughs> Dude, if Roger Stone, a man with the face of Nixon tattooed on his back, thinks you're shady, you fucking shady. This is the first episode where I've screamed into a pillow. Mm-hmm. The first one. But I'm dying. Oh, do I'm you need the screaming pillow? Oh, I will take the screaming pillow. Might... I hate to use my back pillow. But yes, I would prefer the specific screaming pillow because... Oh my god. If, if again, like, if we could go back in time and we could right so many wrongs. Yeah, we're not done. Cohen paid himself an annual $100,000 salary, which was extremely modest for a lawyer at his level, but he lived like a millionaire by drawing on an expense account that, in effect, picked up the tabs for his cars, homes, and entertaining. Hmm. 
He said anything he owned would only be grabbed by the government, which had income tax liens against Cohn totaling $3,187,381, dating back more than 25 years by the IRS's count. (laughs) I mean... I mean, kudos, man. Like, if you're going to crime, you crime all the fucking way. Like, he's like, you know what? I'm going to fucking help Donald Trump be racist against his tenants. I'm going to fucking, like, you know, fuck with elections. And I ain't paying no goddamn income tax. Fuck you. Oh, Oh, goodness. I cannot believe I've never heard about this man. Federal investigations during the 1970s and 80s charged Cohn three times with professional misconduct, including perjury and witness tampering. Mm -hmm. 1986, a five-judge panel of the Appellate Division of New York State Supreme Court disbarred Cohn for unethical and unprofessional conduct, including misappropriation of clients' funds, lying on a bar application, and pressuring a client to amend his will. Mm -hmm. In this case... In 1975, Cohn entered the hospital room of the dying comatose Louis Rosensteel, forced a pen into his hand, and lifted it to the will in an attempt to make himself and Rosenthal's granddaughter beneficiaries, or rather the executors, but the people that control the money. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, the resulting marks were determined in court to be completely indecipherable and in no way a valid signature. Well, that's something. That's something that they were like, you made a comatose man sign his name? That sounds shady. Another one, he also said that, like, no, there weren't there weren't any complaints against me when he was applying to the bar in D.C. Um, there were complaints. There were there complaints. There had been several complaints. Uh, and the other one, which was, when you got to my house, the one that I was going, oh, what the fuck, what the fuck, but didn't have a whole <laughs> bunch of time to research, was... Apparently, he maybe took out an insurance claim on someone else's boat and then had it sunk, (laughs) which killed one of the crew. Like, four men were injured, one man died in the scuttling of this $200,000 luxury yacht. I think he only got $8,000 for his property that was on the boat. But also, why do you have $8,000 worth of property on a boat? It's the 80s. That's like... Three billion dollars. It's the 80s. There was a lot of cocaine on that boat. Mm. There was a lot of cocaine on that boat. Will insurance reimburse you for your cocaine? I mean, why not? I don't know that it won't. It's it's for my general well-being. So in reporting on his disbarment, the New York Times reported that, quote, For much of the last two years, Mr. Cohn has been hospitalized with what he has described as liver cancer. A switchboard operator at his law office, Sachs, Bacon, and Bolin, said Mr. Cohn was, quote, on a boat yesterday and could not be reached. Cohn himself said that he was disbarred because, quote, the, establish- <laughs> the establishment bar hates my guts and called his accusers, quote, a bunch of yo-yos out to smear him. <laughs> a bunch of yo-yos? A bunch of yo-yos. That does sound like a man who was born in the 20s. And he's a yo-yo, I say. So, yeah, during his career, Cohn was indicted and acquitted three times and maintained close ties with Democratic leaders in the New York area, often with cardinals of the the Roman Catholic Archdiocese. Um, Again, you just can't, and you haven't explicitly said it, but, like, you cannot veer away from this child fuckers. Nope. 
You have to at um, least gloss over it at some point. He and his law partner were close to President Reagan, and they were said to have influence in the appointment of federal officials, including judges at the local level. Oh, God. In 1984, Cohn was diagnosed with AIDS and attempted to keep his condition secret while receiving experimental drug treatment. He insisted to his dying day that the disease was liver cancer. He died six weeks after he was disbarred. Yeah, he... And Reagan didn't really like that. Your buddy Reagan. Well, he continued to, to his death from HIV-AIDS to deny that he was gay, yet he got special treatment from the Reagans, who were very guilty of ignoring the AIDS epidemic, but gave special treatment to their friend Roy Cohn at the National Institutes of Health. <laughs> It's rare, I mean, it's it, it won't be every day, but, like, you know, I, I won't think about it. But then, like, a week or two will pass, and then just, like, something will happen. And I'll be sitting there, and I'll be like, fuck Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Fuck him. I hate him. So he had, he had like, cousins and ex-boyfriends who's, who confirmed that he was gay after the fact. But my favorite quote, and pretty much what I will leave it to... It's actually from Roger Stone on this one, uh, which in a 2008 article published by The New Yorker, um, Jeffrey Tubin quotes Roger Stone, quote, Roy was not gay. He was a man who liked having sex with men. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not done. I know, but like, okay, okay, I'm gonna continue. Gays were weak, effeminate. He always has seemed to have these young blonde boys around. It just wasn't discussed. (laughs) So, again, this guy was responsible for, like, ruining the lives of hundreds of gay federal employees during the Lavender Scare. Just guys being dudes. Just now he, now he guys. wasn't gay, just though. Guys being gay. <laughs> he, he wasn't gay, though. He just enjoyed having sex with men. That's... And there were a lot of blonde boys around that were not discussed. A lot of blonde boys. I mean... Like... How, how do you describe being gay, okay? It's clearly more than just having sex with yes, men. Yes, it is largely about blonde boys. <laughs> Someone watched Rocky Horror Picture <laughs> Show and, and really was into gold lame shorts. <laughs> so, again. Oh, my goodness. He died on August 2nd, 1986 in Bethesda, Maryland of complications from AIDS at the age of 59. Mm. According, again, to Roger Stone, who seems to be the authority on this show. <sighs> okay. Combs, quote, absolute goal was to die completely broke and owing millions to the IRS. He succeeded in that. <laughs> That's a big dick energy, though. Like, I can kind of appreciate that. He was like, fuck you, don't get my like, money. Roger Stone is an awful, awful man who has done terrible things to this country, but sometimes he's funny as shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, he was buried in Queens, um... Nearly two decades after he had become almost overnight a nationally known personality for his role in the McCarthy hearings, Cohn predicted that even if he died at age 100, his obituary would be headlined, quote, Roy Cohn dead 
was McCarthy Investigations aide. He was close. I got that information from a New York Times obituary titled, Roy Cohn, aide to McCarthy and fiery lawyer, dies at 59. And fiery lawyer. And That's a fiery nice lawyer. way to say a giant tool. Yeah. Uh, a dramatic and controversial man, Cohn inspired many fictional portrayals after his death. Probably the best known is in Tony Kushner's Angels in America, which, ah. por- which portrays Cohn as a closeted, power-hungry hypocrite haunted by the ghosts of Ethel Rosenberg. Uh, and much better than he deserved in the HBO miniseries he was played by Al Pacino. Yeah, I mean... I- the, all that first stuff tracks, I don't know about Haunted, he sounded pretty into the fact that they were executed. Oh, yeah, no, I like, don't think that he was actually really haunted by it, but artistic it. license. Yeah, I mean, fair, you want to create a nuanced character. Um, well, and, like, whether or not Julius Rosenberg did it, I don't think that there's anyone that thinks that Ethel was guilty from the little bit that I know about the trial, but... But yeah, I mean, like, again, this seemed like a man who, like, guilt was a foreign concept. Uh-huh. So, I've just got four self-care tips for you. Ooh! I definitely need self-care, because I've screamed quite a bit during this episode. Tip number one, be gay. Tip number two, do crimes. <laughs> Tip number three, get tested for HIV, AIDS, like, on a regular basis if you were sexually active, and... Tip four, register to vote. 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 Go vote. <laughs> Good God. So, th- thank you, Daddy, for... Thank you. Thank you, Ginger's Dad. I appreciate this submission that do I you? that gave me heart palpitations. At some point, you're going to do Ronald Reagan, and... I may die. Like, I might literally just collapse into a puddle of just, like, rage and defeat and just, like, melt into your floor like acid. Is he your Cuccinelli? He's my Cuccinelli. I hate Ronald Ray. This is not what the episode's about. <laughs> but I, every once in a while, I mean, me and my father love each other, but also sometimes have a complicated relationship. Um, because, like, there'll definitely be times where I'm like, oh, yeah, remember how, like, Ronald Reagan completely ignored, like, thousands of people dying from AIDS and, like, didn't give a shit and they all died? And he's like, well, I voted for Reagan, so I can't believe you'd say such a thing. I'm like, I know, Dad, I'm blaming you! (laughs) (laughs) Like, that was blame! Complicated! That was blame in my voice! (laughs) Complicated! Trickle down this motherfucking bullshit! Um... (sighs) Wow, what a piece of shit. Yeah, I thought you might enjoy that. I got really excited when I was researching. My dad was just like, have you looked up Roy Cohn? And I was like, no. And he was like, because he like was Trump's lawyer and also tried the Rosenbergs and McCarthy. And I was like, hold my beer. Hold my beer. (laughs) I mean, that was was a journey. I'm, I'm educated. I'm informed. He's the Forrest Gump of bullshit. <laughs> he just was there at like every moment of the bullshit. Uh, and and again, I appreciate your self care tips. I will practice. I practice them every day. Be yes. gay, do crimes. Mm-hmm. That is my motto. Yes, Queen. So that's going to be all for us this week, folks. Oh my goodness, it is. And um, you know, I guess you should like, like, share, and subscribe. We're on. Uh, we're on. The internet? The internet. 
Um, our website is thisfnguypod.com. On Twitter, we are at thisfnguypod. We're also being featured on wherever you get your podcasts, except Apple Apple Podcasts. We're still waiting for that, but it'll happen very soon. But pretty much everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everywhere else. And it, it is possible that by the time this airs, we will be on Apple Podcasts. So don't, you fingers know. crossed. Um, looking it up. And, you know, just, if you know us, just give us money. Yeah. Because <laughs> God knows Ren hasn't set up the Patreon. Buy me a nitro cold brew. I'll be really into it. Mm. As always, I'm Ginger Golub. I'm Ren Martinez. And here's a bonus self-care tip. Always size up when buying pajamas. It's a great tip. And don't be this fucking guy. Peace! This fucking guy.